Insert theme song here. We're keeping that. We're keeping that. Josie, keep that. Hail and welcome to Circle Talk, a podcast for seekers, initiates, and the curious by four Alexandrian witches with endless different opinions. We are your hosts. Hi, I'm Peter, a high priest and cover leader from South Wales. Hi, I'm James, a high priest and cover leader from just outside New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi, I'm Josie, a high priestess and coven leader near Melbourne, Australia. And I am G, a high priestess and coven leader just outside Boston uh, in Massachusetts. So just to remind everybody, uh, we are a podcast where we talk about Alexandrian witchcraft and explore differing opinions on how the Alexandrian tradition is practiced in various covens and around the globe. Listeners are reminded that while we are all initiates of the Alexandrian tradition, we only speak for ourselves and not for the tradition as a whole, which is an impossible thing to do. This is episode seven. If this is your first episode, welcome. You might want to take a moment to pause this and go back to listen to our introductory episodes, episode zero, introductions, and episode one, definitions, or check them out after you enjoy this one. And just a heads up that this is part two of this conversation on why covens, In part one, which was episode five, we talked about why we've chosen to work in covens, some of the main arguments that people make against joining a coven, and some of the FAQs on joining a coven. And it's worth noting that we are certainly not the sole opinions or sources for seekers to think critically on this subject. There's a lot of other people who have done great work and put out a lot of really good information on this subject as well. Thorne Mooney's book, Traditional Wicca, A Seeker's Guide. Uh, is a really good place for seekers to start if they're interested in potentially joining a coven. The Seeking Witchcraft podcast, um, especially some of the earlier episodes, has some good information on joining a coven and on potential red flags. There's also the Seeker pages on Facebook, the Gardnerian Wicca Seekers and Initiates and Alexandrian Wicca Seekers and Initiates, which are good places to ask questions about joining a coven. And the British Traditional Witchcraft Discord, where there's a lot of spaces for seekers to ask questions. So we want to encourage people who are considering joining covens or looking into covens in their area to check out some of those additional resources as well. We have a lot to say on this subject as people who have all chosen a coven craft. And so we're going to keep expanding on this topic. The reason that we originally picked up this topic is because there's a lot of controversy online around the idea of covens. It's a very contentious issue in the pagan and magical communities. And so we thought it was important for us to address uh, some of those concerns and hopefully alleviate a lot of those concerns or at least provide practical advice for dealing with any issues that might arise. As a group of people who practice traditional witchcraft, it behooves us to ensure that the tradition continues to be passed on, which means continuing the work of covens. And so just to sort of give us a quote, thinking about that as we move into our discussion, tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire, which is a quote by Sir Gustav Mahler. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about asking for initiation versus the idea of joining. What is a proper person and what is properly prepared? How do we find a coven? How do we approach a coven? How to meet people from the coven and what should we expect from that process? Red flags to be on the lookout for? And when do we get initiated? So with that having been said, 
high five, get on the broom, and let's go, witches. The first thing that we want to address is asking for initiation versus joining because uh, I made a semantic error in posting our episode five, and I titled it instead of why covens, which was the original title, why covens, I called it why join a coven because it was late and I was not paying attention. And that caused a really interesting discussion in one of the Alexandrian Facebook pages around this idea of the use of the word joining. And so we thought that would be a really interesting topic to speak on. Why, why is the use of that word joining somewhat contentious? Why did that rub some people the wrong way? And why, why did we still use in this episode that word like talking about joining a coven? So Josie, do you want to get us started on that? Sure. I mean, joining's probably not the right word. I didn't pick up on it. Um, I wasn't fussed by it, but when you do think about it, joining is not the right word, I guess, because it's not a matter of just rolling in, being like, hello, guys, here I am. I'm in the cupboard now. I've decided I'd like to join, so here I am. Um, usually there's a bit more of a process than that, and we're going to be sort of outlining some of that in this episode, I think. I'm going to say a lot of it comes down to the mentality and the, the nuances of the different words. There's a big difference in the way of thinking about saying, I'm going to join a coven versus going through the process of seeking with a coven and realizing that this is the place for me, but also the coven's perspective. And so the saying joining a coven takes the coven perspective out of it. It's very presumptuous and it can be viewed as lacking the proper respect for the process depending on the use of the word, because one of the word uses of initiation is to join a group. And so you're initiated, you join a coven. So it just depends on language. I think that maybe people rightly or wrongly read a little bit into, into it too much, or maybe read between the lines that, 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 that aren't necessarily there. You know, I think as a coven leader, if somebody came to me and said, can I join your coven? I'd be like, yeah, cool. There's a process to go through. I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get hung up on the, on the word join it because whether we join or whether we don't, the the end goal is still the same. The end action is still the same. You will become a member of that coven and a member of the wicker having had that initiation. So I think when I started to to read that conversation, I was just a bit like, mm. I mean, I just think people are being a little bit too nitpicky. On, on the word joining. I think this is this is an issue of um, typing and te- reading text versus having like an actual conversation where it's easier to read the intention of people. Because yes, there is something different between like, oh, I'm going to join this group and can I join this group, right? Because I don't care about the word join. It's that presumption that James mentioned the understanding that like, this is something that you have to ask for and work towards. It's not an automatic given. And I think this is where like a lot of the elitist accusations come in against British traditional Wicca that we're elitist because there is a certain expectation that seekers will not assume that entry is a given, right? Seekers are not going to assume that they like are automatically in just because they've asked. that's really important just for the whole relationship between the seeker and the coven leader, right? That, that everybody's very clear 
that at any given step in the process, somebody could step back from it, right? So there is a sort of humility, I think, that as a coven leader, I expect from students and seekers. Like, I think humility is really important in the craft. And so I expect a certain amount of humility from students, and I certainly expect a certain amount of humility from myself. So if people come with a presumption that they're automatically going to get an in, I think most coven leaders are going to sort of take that the wrong way. And so I think that's why it rubbed some of the people in the community the wrong way, because they felt it had that sort of attitude of just sort of like willy nilly, just get it being allowed in without doing the work. That being said, though, I personally haven't come across many people who have been that presumptuous. I'm not sure how common that is. I'm sure you guys could speak to it more, but yeah, no, I haven't I've come across people who have an attitude of like, I am getting like I deserve or like I'm taking don't tend to seek out coven work, do they? Right. Like, cause this is a very cooperative process. So if, if you feel like you are already have everything or like you're such hot shit that everybody's going to be super excited to have you, then I feel like you're probably not going to enjoy coven work anyway. So I don't, I don't run into people like that. Well, yeah, it's like you said in the last episode, like if, if you don't like being told what to do or hearing other people's opinions, coven work possibly isn't for you. I think as well, we shouldn't blame seekers for, for maybe being a little bit presumptuous because they don't, they don't know, you know, every coven has their own process. And I don't think that they actually assume, ah, oh, just through the process of seeking, I will gain entrance to a coven. I think a lot of them come to us knowing that there's going to be some sort of process, but then, you know, we can cut them some slack for not maybe knowing the lingo or which words drop because that's why they're here. They're seeking for a reason. I think that that's a good point. It's of important consideration, I think, as a coven leader, that we remember cultural differences, language differences, e- even minor subcultural different parts of the U.S., even the rest of the world, that there's nuances in language, etc. And some of that extends beyond just those kinds of things. I'm seeing a lot of it with uh, different generations currently. There's a big difference in how the older generations approach seeking and the way they talked about things were way back in the day versus what the the younger Gen Z, young millennial, saying young millennial, not older millennial, because I'm, I'm on the older end, on the cusp of Gen X. There's a big difference there in the way they view approaching groups and interacting socially, et cetera. And all of that's okay. We just need to keep that in mind um, as coven leaders, especially since we're trying to maintain a living tradition. The tradition's going to survive. It's going to survive in their hands and not ours because the tradition is going to die with us if we don't pass it on. And that's just the way it is. Religious studies uh, perspective on that is religions grow in one of two ways. Either people join it or they're born into it. And with the way our particular religious movement is set up, no one's getting born into it. We either grow because we pass it on or it ends. I think 
assuming best intentions is such an important practice in general. And if something, if an initial communication rubs you the wrong way on either side of that communication, it's always a good idea to just sort of assume best intentions, assume that whatever offense was taken wasn't intended and try the next step of the communication. And I think like the joining process, most of us have a joining process or um, a meetup process that exists purely to deal with that sort of getting through that sort of awkward first communication. It's also worth noting, like I grew up in school learning how to write a formal letter and like practicing, like writing letters to, I don't know, whoever, Congress people, our parents, our families, ourselves. Right. But letter writing is not really a thing that happens. Most people communicate nowadays via email or even forms. So if you're not used to long form communication, writing that initial communication to a coven, because most of that happens via the internet nowadays, that initial email or that initial communication to a coven is going to read very differently than what I might expect being a person who came from a generation of long form communication. I don't see it as a as a massive thing, the the generational gap, but I do think that the younger people are, the less they seem to, for example, write formal letters and therefore maybe are not used to writing or talk in a certain way. And they will just talk to a stranger how they talk to their friends. And we probably mentioned it in the last episode about being you know how how do you approach a cover and what kind of language do you use almost treat it as a as a job interview because really that's that's what you're doing you know when you when you go to seek when you go to join not join a coven it's it's all about that that initial interaction like are you a good fit for us are we a good fit for you yeah and so a little bit later in the episode I think we are going to sort of go into those details and give some suggestions for how that initial communication might look but I think Thorne Mooney also did a really nice job with that as well. So that's another good reason to check out her book. So all of that having been said, this very long digression on why, what is the issue with joining a coven or, or one's attitude towards coming into a coven? Another phrase that people might hear pretty often is either through the process of vouching or just in communication about British traditional witchcraft is PPPP, proper person, properly prepared. And so I think that's a really coded thing for people. And I think it would be really interesting for us each to sort of give our ideas about what PPPP means, proper person, properly prepared. What does that mean to each of us? We talked a little bit about this in the definitions episode, but as I understand it, proper person can kind of vary depending on the coven, the coven leader and their values, but it's whether you feel this person is a fit and is going to be proper for Wicca and to join the Wicca. Properly prepared means that they've undergone the right steps towards initiation. Just jumping on that, for me, one of the reasons of getting to know uh, a would-be initiate or somebody who's joining an outer court and that period during outer court is to see, you know, do they have time? as well to dedicate to to learning you know are they going through some major change in their life which might mean that they're not gonna you know they're not gonna have time to to learn witchcraft or to learn wicca and there's a lot of learning you know just after you initiate they you know you you strike whilst whilst it's still hot there's a lot of learning to do and I think for me part of being a proper person is is this is this person ready do they have 
anything going on which might impact their learning within the coven or within the outer court. And then really just similar to Josie, properly prepared is going through going through that initiation right, you know, making sure the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, making sure that nothing is untoward and that everything is, is proper. So in some some communities, proper person is taught to be nothing more than an initiate. Another initiate is a proper person. Um, I call BS, and I call it BS because at the time when you, as the prospective initiate, is undergoing the right, and this is said, you're not an initiate yet, and you have been found as a proper person at that time. So semantically. You can't be a initiate and a proper person at that time. So it's very subjective. I think it extends into what I like to think of as the whole person concept. Are they mentally prepared and proper for the process that we're going to undergo? Are they mature enough? Are they emotionally capable of dealing with the spiritual alchemy? And then... Is there any physical problem that I, as a coven leader, can't accommodate? I, I'm extremely accommodating and, and I'm willing to work with anyone. There's no one, you know, I immediately strike off because of some physical attribute. But if someone's got a medical need and I can't assist or help with it, I'm I'm not the guy. Um, and I think some of it also extends into morality. So... That's that's a proper person. It's it's very hard to define that for the tradition as a whole because it is very subjective. And then properly prepared is having undergone the right of initiation and we've hit every benchmark that the initiation right is supposed to have at minimum. I'm all yeah. for additions. Yeah, my feelings on proper person properly prepared fall in line with Josie's. I know that I've definitely heard a lot of people be like, oh, proper person properly prepared. That whole combination phrase means they went through the initiation correctly and hit all, checked all the boxes. And that has always surprised me because I always just felt that proper person meant that ethically, morally, this person was proper. And I guess, the, of course, the real issue with that is that that's a very subjective thing, right? What's proper for me and my covenant might be different for other people. But when I'm looking at seekers, I'm looking for proper people who are not raising any red flags on my end, who are going to be a good fit for my coven, who I'm not concerned are going to be hurtful or malicious in any way, at the very least. That kind of also goes into what we've talked about a few different times with the vouching process too, where we've said like, we can say, yes, so-and-so is certainly a properly initiated or lineaged Alexandrian, but I can't give my recommendation. And you're welcome to go talk to other people and see if they feel differently. But this is, my sense is that they're not a proper person, right? And so I would withhold my recommendation, but I will tell you that they are valid, um, validly lineaged. Right. So that's sort of a piece of that conversation is it it is subjective. There's subjectivity. And that's where the autonomy of covens and the autonomy of Alexandrian witchcraft comes in. And 
I feel like in no other episode more than this one, are we going to really get to that like coven autonomy piece? Because when we're talking about the process of becoming part of a coven, that is going to look so different depending on which coven you're talking about. And so I think the further we get into this episode, the more clear that's going to become. I think it's also worth pointing out here, just like we did in the vouching episode, that the reason we have so much emphasis on this is so that these vouchers can be completely watertight so that as an initiate, when you meet another initiate, you know that they've been through the same process and that they've been checked out in some way. Yeah, for a lot of people, that properly prepared piece is the most important piece in terms of providing a vouch. For sure. So all of that having been said very, very quickly and briefly, because it it belongs here, although we've said it a few different times, how does one go about joining or finding a coven, right? So we've mentioned a few times now, the best places to find covens that are vouched for covens are the Alexandrian Wicca Seekers and Initiates Group and the Gardnerian Wicca Seekers and Initiates Group on Facebook. Those are places that you can find covens that are vouched for by other vouched for initiates as being valid. You can also look at Mandragora Magica to find a list of covens in your area, but there's no guarantee that those are vouched for covens. So you have to still look into them. There's an old trick that, at least in the southeastern United States, used to be pretty prevalent. Um, You don't run into it as often, but occasionally, every three or four years, I'll still run into it, where coven leaders will take a business card or their contact information, and they slip it into BTW-oriented books at bookstores. Plot twist. Yes. Old school. It's really old school. My very first coven, non-BTW one, but an initiatory form of witchcraft, I found that way. I've had seekers come to us that way. And as recent as a couple years ago, I picked up a copy of uh, The Gospel of Witches by Leland. And it had someone's coven information written in the front. That's fantastic. I know that's how my high priestess found her coven back in like the early 80s. So um, it is super old school. And now I'm going to go get business cards made up for my coven. Because why not? (laughs) Because it's such a good excuse. That's great. Um, Josie reminded me also that the Discord, so in addition to the Facebook groups and Magica, Magica, the Discord is a really good place for people to look. We will keep that linked in our episode notes. The Discord can make sure that the coven that you're looking at or the priest or priestess that you're talking to is a vouched for lineage initiate. So that is also an excellent resource. So let's assume that you managed to actually find a coven uh, in your area or that you are able and willing to travel to. What do you do in terms of approaching the leaders of that coven or whoever is doing the communication? How do you approach that coven? I hate nothing more than getting a one-line email from a seeker going, tell me more about your coven, typed in all caps, not addressed to anyone, not signed. I I need something. I'm not just going to – I don't even reply to those. It's it's delete and move on. This probably comes back to what G was saying about how people don't – how not everybody knows how to write a formal letter or to approach someone formally. So what sorts of things should you include in an email? What what do you look for, James? I need some kind of thought to go into the email. You know, what are you looking for? What's your background? Who are you? 
something, give me some meat and potatoes that I can work with and not just tell me more about your cousin. No, I don't have time for that. Why should I invest in you? I think just like jumping on the point, because we've mentioned it a couple of times now that, you know, young people don't know how to write a letter. But like, I know, I know that in whichever education system you are, young, young people are being taught how to write, whether it's a letter, whether it's an email, whether it's a blog post, whether it's an application form. I know that there are teachers out there that are, that are teaching these people skills. And if those people are not using those skills, it's because they weren't listening in class. That's the first thing and they have to listen. And secondly, those formal writing skills transfer, right? Like they, instead of writing on a piece of paper, they type with a keyboard, that's it. But going off from what James said, give us something a bit about you. You know, where, where do you come from? Do you have any prior knowledge or any prior experience? What are you, what are you looking for? Because if you're just Googling covens and you happen across us and the first thing you do is, is control F contact and then send us an email, you might not know that we're an Alexandrian coven or you might not know that we're BTW. And with, with those two things come certain responsibilities. And yeah, so I, I think it's just, who are you? What do you want from us? <laughs> and leave. <laughs> All the teachers in the room are like, you weren't listening to the lesson on how to write a proper email. <laughs> um, I don't think it's just young people either. No, it's like, not. Like, let's not throw no. rocks at young people here. Um, it's it's a cultural thing almost just in, in this day and age that, you know, the written letter is dying and it's sad. Well, I think I could that, not agree more. But I also think it's the medium. I think if you did put paper in front of most people, they would automatically write in a more formal way. There's something about moving on to electronic communication that, yes, even people who learned, you know, you know, like that how there's people of a certain age who all have the exact same handwriting because it was like drilled into them, right? So even people who were like, you know, really did all of their writing, wrote a lot of formal letters. If Once you move on to electronic communication, things are totally different. My father knows way more text acronyms than I do. <laughs> it like totally baffles me. Um, so there's just something about about email. So I think that people just have to be conscious and aware of that, that you want to be slightly more formal in your communication um, because you're talking to a stranger. And I think anytime you're communicating with a stranger, you should probably step up your formality a little bit. I think that extends beyond just email as well. So oh, like if you're sending a Facebook message or whatever as well. Be formal, whether it's Discord, Facebook, et cetera. I have to say, in addition to like, so as you're writing this initial communication, which whichever medium that's through, definitely introduce yourself, as people have said, definitely express why you're interested. I like to see a certain amount of certainty or excitement um, from the people who are writing to me. I, I answer all my communications, even if people seem like they're like, mm, I'm really not sure about what I'm looking for. Um, Cause I don't feel like people who are unsure are usually the people who are going to be working with my coven anytime soon. So when people are genuinely looking to join a coven, I think that excitement, um, that eagerness sort of like shows through and it, it just makes me a little bit more excited and eager as well to sort of get to know a little bit more about this person. 
in terms of like response, so once you send out your initial communication of introducing yourself, what you're looking for, why you're looking for it, maybe how you found the coven, you should expect back a response. Ideally, one of the most common things I think we see in the seeker groups is people being like, I sent an email a few days ago, nobody's gotten back to me. Or I sent an email three weeks ago, and nobody's gotten back to me. And so I think in those cases, it's very, it is valid after I would give it like at least a week, maybe two, to check in with the seeker groups and see if anybody has other contact information. It's also valid to send a repeat communication, polite, just say, hey, just checking in in case my previous message was lost in spam. Or um, I know it's a hectic time of year. I know everybody's crazy, um, but it's a good idea to sort of send that repeat communication as well. And once you've sent that, if, if you actually do make contact, what can you expect back from the coven leader? I think that really depends on the coven. I know you mentioned it at the very beginning, and I think that the further along we get into this, coven autonomy is going to be a big player. But I really think it depends on on the coven. I think if if a seeker was to email us, I think one of the first things that, that we would look at is, you know, just having a, a quick back and forth conversation. Where are you? You know, if they haven't included the location information, where are you? Is there any time that is good for you to meet up in the next couple of weeks so we can just have a have a sit down talk, have a coffee, and just to just to kind of get that initial initial back and forth feeling. I I would say like I send a questionnaire back. The length of my response is often dependent on the length of the initial contact sent to me. If somebody includes questions or like has a number of different things to say in their initial email, I will try and address those. But then I generally include a questionnaire. My questionnaire is kind of lengthy, but it helps me to sort of get at some necessary information. I guess it might also serve as a sort of filter for people who are who are going to, I think, sort of struggle or who are really not sure that this is what they want to do. The questionnaire, I say on mine, like, if there's anything you're not sure about or, like, you can't answer, just say that and, like, skip it. Like, don't get hung up on stuff. Like, I try to be kind about it, but I do ask a, a number of different questions. Everything from, like, what have you read so far? Why are you interested in Alexandrianism, Alexandrian witchcraft in particular? To, you know, are there any past issues with drug or alcohol abuse? that, you know, we should be aware of. I will say when, when people answer that question, honestly, and say, yes, like to me, that's great. Like that's the opposite. That's to me, it's like a green flag when somebody's willing to say like, yes, I have had these issues in the past and, you know, I'm working on them or here's where I'm at or whatever. And I'm, I'm saying that explicitly because I don't want people to think like it's a trap. And if I say like, yes, I've had issues in the past, they're not going to let me in the coven. Like, no, I, I just genuinely want to know because as a coven leader, that's something I may need to make accommodations for. Like instead of having only wine available, have cider or whatever. So it's it's a pretty wide ranging questionnaire. And I definitely also want it to be of service to the person taking it so that they have to be sort of reflective and genuinely think about like, what are my feelings about deity? What are my feelings about what witchcraft is? I also have in my questionnaire, what are your feelings about working with people who are GLBTQIA? How do you feel about people who are non-monogamous or who have quote unquote alternative lifestyles, whatever that means? What are your feelings about working with people of different race or ethnicities? 
just because for me, those are really important parts of being a proper person. And so people's responses to that, or again, it can act as a sort of a filter. If people see that and they're like, Ooh, I don't want to get involved in whatever this is. It's because we don't want any bigots. No. And we want to make sure that our covens are safe spaces for everybody where they can learn magic, learn witchcraft and grow personally. I think, I think that's, that's what it boils down to, doesn't it? Yeah. So those are the kinds of questions I think people could expect from me in either the questionnaire or an initial meeting. Other people? So I don't send out a questionnaire at this stage in the the coven's development. Still very young. We haven't established a outer court. I don't think we're going to. What I've done to date is been like, here's the answers to your questions that you asked. If you are interested in getting to know us further here's how you can do that and it's via a local coffee meet that we host monthly but the seeker is going to have to put the effort in to get to know us past that Um, i have worked with groups with questionnaires and some of the other questions includes things like give transportation that's important what are your expectations of the coven i think those kinds of things are also on some of the questionnaires I've seen. But at this point in my coven's development, it's really a lot of you getting to know us. And if you get to know us well, and you're interested in joining the coven and initiation, you should broach that subject and conversation, either in a formal written way or in person. Mine are kind of a similar kind of vein to yours, G, the questions, whether they're in a questionnaire or kind of when I meet people. Probably one of the ones I'd add is um, we started off by asking what books people had read, but then you realise that that's kind of a can of worms because not everybody has read books that will approach you. So I changed that to like, I think I I still have a book question, but there's one about is there an online content creator that you like and, and what do you like about their work? I know some uh, coven leaders as well who ask for like a link to social media as well because mm. just because that's such a good way to get to know somebody. True. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, like after the questionnaire process or if there isn't a questionnaire process, usually there's an initial meetup, usually in a public space. COVID has made this a little bit difficult. So I've done some of my initial meetups on Zoom instead um, as a way of getting to know potential students. And then what happens after that is going to differ very widely. Some groups offer one-on-one style classes just as a way of getting to know the person. Some groups might want you to have coffee a few more times to just sort of get to know each other. Some people might ask that you attend outer court functions or outer court classes. And so can we talk a little bit about what is an outer court and if we use the outer court system or not in our particular covens? So we use an outer court system. Um, I think I've spoken about this in the in the previous one as well, but really quickly, just uh, for any new listeners, we in, in our coven use an outer court system. And we basically use it similar to how G has just explained. There are basic topic classes to, to take whilst it's almost kind of a waiting period between um, being, being told, yes, you can go onto the outer court program and waiting for initiation. Now, that's not to say that if you get through all of the outer court program that you will definitely get initiation. You know, it should be hard to get into, but easy to get out of. So as a coven, 
but also as a seeker in our outer court at any one given time, you know, we, we could turn around and say, yeah, this isn't working and we don't even have to give reasons. You know, that could be from us, that could be from a seeker. But yeah, we use we use an outer court system just because it gives us time as a coven to get to know the seeker, but also for the seeker to get to know us. You know, if they are being presented with material which they don't get along with, that might be telling that we are not the group for them. It's not to say that initiation isn't for them or, or being an initiate of the wicker isn't for them. It just might mean that we're not the group for them. And that's that's okay. The first coven I was initiated into the Alexandrian tradition had a pretty formalized outer court in that it was a group of non-initiates who some were seekers and some were dedicants who had gone through a ritual of dedication that went through formalized classes and rituals, etc., run by the initiates. And it was like being in a coven, but not as intimate and not as formal, final, etc. The second coven was much less formal. There was no outer court. There was, I wouldn't call them seeker classes. I would call them seeker discussions, where we met several times around the kitchen table to talk about a handful of different topics, just to make sure everyone's on the same page prior to initiation. And we're more this second bit. I don't run an Alexandrian outer court mostly because of time. I, I do run an eclectic group that's sort of a 101 kind of group, but that's more to just kind of get people geared up to understand witchcraft in a more general sense and to give people a framework of understanding that can be applied to any tradition. I also work full time, you know, run a coven and write books. So I, I'm really, <laughs> I don't think I can do any more witchcraft at this point. Um, but apart from that, yeah, no formal outer court per se. We have a short outer court. We have like outer court one and outer court two. We have like a pre-dedicant outer court that's like a series of like maybe six classes that are very 101 and just sort of generic. And it's mostly just a way to like get to know people and discuss, see what they know already, um, see what you might have to cover, get a sense of who they are and then, and see if they're interested, right? Sort of feel each other out but on both sides. Like Peter said, it should be hard to get into and easy to get out of. And that's, that, that goes both ways. At multiple points, I ask people to make sure that we're who they wanna be with, that they feel like we're a good fit. I'm very lucky in that where I live, like we are far from the only game in town. So if it isn't a good fit between our coven and a seeker, then, you know, they do have other options. Um, But I don't want somebody just being with our coven because it's conveniently located on public transportation, right? I want somebody with us because they enjoy being with us. And that feeling has to go both ways. So I check in very frequently in this whole process with people do we both feel like this relationship is still beneficial, that it's going well? After those six classes, we also have a dedicant right that they go through. That is just to sort of sort of solidify the agreement between us, I guess, that there's going to be further training from here on out. It's not a guarantee of initiation, but we are going to sort of like get more deeply into things. And at that point, you know, I amp up the work a little bit more. So it's like, here, can you carry this workload? And all of that is sort of preparatory for eventually initiation if the dedicancy period goes well and and both of us are still interested in moving forward with that. 
so I definitely have like a, a long ish, I would say like for me, that period from like start to initiation is usually at least a year. We tend to take a little bit of time with that. I think in a roundabout way, what we're all saying is that they, there are expectations. This isn't just a free ride. You know, you were, you were as, as a seeker, you're going to be given a list of tasks to do. If you don't like that, then, you know, this Kevin isn't for you. BTW might not be for you. Alexandrian training, Alexandrian witchcraft training is extensive and there's a lot to do. So having an outer court for us kind of gives our seeker, it gives them a chance to look at material and think, yeah, is, is this for me? Can I work with this? But there's definitely going to be a lot of expectations. And if you if you don't like that, it just I, I, I know it sounds really harsh, but unfortunately, we're not for you. And you're going to have to look elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's like really important on both sides to like remember the humanity of both people in this in this potential equation, right? Like it's part of this is what a uh, high priestess I know refers to as the living room test. Like, do I want you in my living room? Are you an okay person to have around potentially my family in my home um, to be sharing energy with, right? Part of it is like, as Josie said, like we're all busy people as coven leaders. Like taking you on as a student is work and energy for me that I am very happy to do. I do it because it brings me joy, but I'm also not inclined to do so if we're not a good fit for each other. And so the reason that some covens have longer processes here is to sort of make sure it takes time to set up that intimacy and to make sure that it's a good connection. Not always, but I think in covens that tend to have longer introductory periods also tend to have stronger social connections. I don't know if you guys agree with that or not, but like part of the reason my introductory period is so long is because in my line and in my like family of covens, we tend to be very close knit within the coven space and like socialize outside of coven as well. And so that's kind of part of the reason why I think I keep that process so long is because I know once you're in, once you're initiated, like you're going to be a part of my life for a really long time in a very intimate way. And so I want to make sure that that connection is really healthy and good. Uh, real quick before we, we look at changing topics, I just wanted to advocate on behalf of the seekers and say, as a seeker, it is okay for you to have expectations of your coven leaders as well. But you should do so fairly. And what I mean by that is it's things like you can have the expectation to be treated well, to be treated like a human, to have the coven communicate to you as well things like that yes like you should always be able to you should expect that they can give you a set of expectations that they're that they want from you that they're things that they want you to meet that that the coven has an expectation for a vague notion of time at least or a process and that they can explain the process to you sometimes it takes longer sometimes it takes less time but either way it should be communicated to you what the expectations are. You shouldn't be left dangling or questioning or unsure about what's happening during any piece of this, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll jump back in really quickly, just on the on the social aspect. There are some covens that practice a no, no socialization rule and you don't socialize with members. The the witches are there to work and that's kind of their, their, only, their only goal. But at, us as a coven, we are all quite social as well. We will all get together for whatever not necessarily all the time as 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 a practicing coven but the members will get together just just have a cup of coffee or just have a glass of wine or or chit chat but yeah there are covens that practice the 
no socialising rule as well. I thought that was just something that the seekers should know, just in case they do come across it where they might be expecting to meet up for a cup of coffee you know, like on the weekend and the HP or HPS high priests or high priestess turns around and says, no, no, <laughs> we don't do that. I think that's a super important point. And, and also sort of like goes into a little bit the question of like, what should you as the seeker be looking for? And we're going to address that like slightly more in a few minutes. But like one of those things is if you want a social coven, then you you should make that part of what you're looking for. And part of your discussion is like, I'm looking for a coven that is also going to be friends, like that we're, where we're friendly with each other. And if you're like, no, I have enough friends. My life is busy. I just want to come here and do work. You know, then I think you should also communicate that to the coven leader and just make sure that y'all are a good fit in that way. So you've found a coven. You have made initial communication with that coven. You have met with them. And now is the opportunity for you to ask some questions and figure out if this coven is the right fit for you. And so what are some of the questions that we expect to hear from seekers? Maybe we can like go in a round and then people can add if they have other questions. So I'll kick it off. Unless we, unless we tell you, I, I want to seek you to ask, how often do you meet? When do you meet? Is it a couple of times a month? Is it once a week? Do you meet every other day? Is it in person? Is it online? I think that's really important. How off, How often do you meet? Because if, for me, again, it comes back to that time issue. Because if I turn around and say, oh, you know, we meet up every weekend. We have a ritual on a Saturday morning and a Sunday evening. That's a lot of time. You know, the next day from a Sunday evening is going to be Monday night. And most people are going to be, you know, jeering up to go to work the next day. So, yeah, time how often do you meet? I think the first question I normally get asked is, what do you believe? And that question normally gets asked because seekers don't approach us from an orthopraxis direction. So we get to have the conversation about the difference between practice-based and belief-based. And we extend that into not forcing beliefs on people or forcing practices over top of their personal practice or whether or not they have to have a set pantheon, things like that. Another one, and this is possibly controversial, but um, find out if there's a cost involved. There shouldn't be a charge for training in British traditional Wicca. This that is like being... the one thing I think that we can say. Yeah, we might touch on this when we get to red flags as well, but there shouldn't be any cost associated with learning British traditional Wicca. With a slight caveat that, like, it's not unreasonable to be asked to bring a bottle of wine. It doesn't have to be a good bottle, right? But, like, it's to contribute to a feast or to contribute in some way is, of course. is a, you know, a polite expectation. And if you can't afford to do that, just say that to the coven people. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I think we touched on this in the last episode, too. Like, there is money attached to it in that it's travel and it's your time and these things and your energy that's that's what you'll be asked to contribute and maybe something for the feast but if you're rolling in and you're getting charged twenty dollars a night twenty dollars a session maybe start asking questions or start yeah wondering about that that's not the coven for you if they're charging you money to be there it's fine if they have some kind of expectation for you to contribute to the goals and work of the group either they're Oh, it's your turn to 
to bring the cakes or the wine or but we're low on candles. Can you help us out this time? That's that's different. But if you're the only one always buying all the things, you're not in the right place. Even where dues are a part of it, like the coven that I was in had dues. Dues should absolutely not show up until after you're initiated. Like if you're not actually a member of the coven, you should not have to pay dues. And dues should be very cheap and affordable. Like I think we paid $15 twice a year for our coven dues. And that was just that was just for candles and stuff like that. So, but different covens do this differently. If if it seems exorbitant or it's setting off alarm bells for you, then definitely not the coven for you and you should go elsewhere. If you need to set up a direct debit or stand in order into the HPS's account or the HP's <laughs> account, that's a red flag. I mean Cash up. in my first coven that I that that kind of started me on everything, it was a non-BGW coven. It was just you know, Wiccan flavored. We had like a kitty, which which we would contribute to, for exactly those reasons: for candles, for wine, for incense. Yeah, you know, you can you can either you can either bring something or you will put something into the kitty. I disagree that it shouldn't be a nice bottle of wine. G. I think it's you know I'm not gonna I don't want to drink nasty wine. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a nice bottle of wine. People do what I mean, they can. If it if it tastes like vinegar. I'm going to shoot you a look across the circle and I'm going to let you know that I don't like this wine and you will not be invited again. <laughs> Sommeliers only for Peter's coven. They go directly to initiation. Yeah. As someone who bakes, makes both wine and vinegar, I'm going to bottle both so oh, that when we do meet, so we're, we're going to see. See if you can tell the difference. God, I hope we can tell the difference. Oh, no, no. Yeah. I'm just going to put the bottles out and we're going to see what happens. <laughs> I was gonna say it's either very bad wine or very good vinegar. I don't know. <laughs> what if it's both? I'll drink both. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not picky. <laughs> One of the most common questions, of course, is is being skyclad required? And we talked, I think, a little bit about this in the last episode. It should be understood that if you're learning to join British traditional witchcraft, being skyclad, again, this I will say for all covens, at some point you will have to be skyclad. That is a basic expectation of joining British traditional witchcraft. But it should not be expected of you until you know the coven well. And it should certainly ideally not be a first time thing. If you're into that kind of thing, that's between you and the coven. But I think it's it's a reasonable ask about is Skyclad expected and when would that be expected? I think it's safe really quickly just to kind of answer that question. I think the first time that somebody should be skyclad with another group or, or, or with a group of people that they don't necessarily know totally 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 well is during initiation i think anything before that that's that's not a btw thing and i know i know of covens that only practice skyclad when they're doing initiations and, and elevations other btw covens might do everything skyclad but yeah i i think i think the first time that a seeker or kind of like somebody who's getting initiated, the first thing they should be skyclad is during their initiation. I don't disagree with you. And that is how I would treat it. However, I do have to push back a little bit and just say, I know that I've seen coven leaders who are vouched for lineaged coven leaders say that they do sometimes skyclad work with dedicants. And I think that is just sort of like part of the conversation. And if that's something that the seeker or dedicant is comfortable with like for there's a there are people in this world who are perfectly fine with being nude um god bless them and so you know then that's fine 
I don't want people thinking like if they practice skyclad with dedicants that they're not BTW. They may well be. It's just, again, one of those things is, is this coven the right fit for you? If that idea makes you uncomfortable, if you aren't ready for that, then have that conversation with the coven leader. If they're not willing to have that conversation with you, then that's probably not the right fit for you. If you're perfectly fine with it, then great. Then you have found the right coven for you. So just something to keep in mind. When in Rome, do as Gardner did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trying to the nudist retreat on the weekends. <laughs> Any other questions that we would expect? Uh, to hear from or that we think seekers might want to ask probably important to find out what the goals of the coven are so what kind of time frames are involved perhaps what kind of trainings involved whether they meet with other covens I don't think it's always appropriate to ask like how many people are in the coven or things like that but you could certainly ask for ballpark kind of figures just to know what it is that you're coming into ask for a vouch Good point. I think it is ridiculously important for seekers to ask for a vouch. Please ask me for one. I will give it to you. People withhold the vouch. It's a red flag. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's not rude to ask a coven leader to, you know, just establish that they have a vouched for lineage coven. I think maybe some of these points that we're discussing as well, if a seeker doesn't ask, we could offer this up. Because again, if this is somebody brand spanking new and they, they have no clue, what a vouch is mm. they're not going to say to us can you give us a you know can i have a vouch from you so i think some of these things if seekers don't ask we should almost like kind of offer it yes. you know say look if you want to if you want to jump into the pdw discord or you want to jump on some of the or some of the facebook groups and ask about the coven and ask about us like you can do that by all mm -hmm. means we're not going to shy away from that yeah i think the the last question that i think might be a good one for seekers, but this is very dependent. If the coven has an outer court that you begin circling with, it's worth checking in about whether there are oath-bound expectations on what you see and experience in outer court. Usually the nature of an outer court is like, no, none of this is oath-bound. That's why it's an outer court. But again, just sort of like being clear with the coven leaders about what are their expectations of you as well. So answers to those questions are part of sort of how you know if this coven is a good fit for you. Aside from these questions, what are the other things that people should look at to sort of gauge as they go through the process of seeking or, or starting to work with or meet with a coven to decide if the coven is a right fit for them? I think for me, going back to this time element as well, if I, if I wasn't given some sort of time frame, like how many lessons are there in and out of court? Am I going to be in, an, in this out of court for years and years and years and years? Do I then ask or do you tell me that I'm ready? These are extra questions I think that seekers should either ask or, or be given. I think taking that seeker on that journey with you instead of instead of keeping everything. So, you know, instead of keeping all your cards close to your chest, talk to them about the process as well. There's a series of lessons. We expect you to come to at least one Sabbath within the next couple of months. You know, we expect you to... We expect you to be talking to us as well. Don't just go radio silence. If there's something you want to know, then you can ask. From a seeker's perspective, I think there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, definitely time. What are the expectations? Can I meet the expectations? A lot of it really comes down to, to fit. The very first time I sat down with my first Alexandrian coven, the high priest was like, I'm queer. Is that a problem? And you know what? I'm glad he asked 
it's not a problem. Love the fact he asked. Love him to death. But those things need to be set up front because some people are going to have a problem with that. And the coven needs to know. But likewise, you as a seeker need to know, does the coven have problems with this? What are, whatever these things are, I'm just using that as my example. I think that's a really good example as well because it's been at least my experience that lots of seekers that, that we meet and, and it just so happens somehow that, you know, the craft attracts the marginalized. It attracts a lot of LGBTQ plus people because they're also a marginalized group. And I think maybe coming out with it instead of expecting it to be said, you know, if I sit here and say, right, I'm gay, is that a problem? Well, I think that's a good a good thing, even if a seeker doesn't ask that question, was a HP or HPS that's talking to this seeker. I think that's a really good point. Kind of like putting the sticking points out there, putting your cards on the table straight away. Because if the answer is yes, I don't like gay people or I don't want to be in a in a circle with this kind of person, then I suppose that it stops there. That's just how it is. Yeah, for sure. I I want my coven to be a space where the members can be authentically themselves and feel safe about that. So yeah, it would absolutely stop there. Same. I think some people fixate on lineage and they agonize over like Gardnerian Alexandrian, Gardnerian Alexandrian. I think we've made our feelings pretty clear on this that you go for the people, not not the lineage. People over tradition every time. What is lineage again, guys? Josie, I'm asking you that. (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks, Peter. You're welcome. (laughs) By lineage, we mean what? Maybe I'm not talking about lineage. Maybe I'm talking about tradition when I'm talking about Alexandrian or Gardnerian. I'm talking about what kind of tradition. Lineage, we usually mean uh, how that current of the tradition was passed down. So we can all trace our initiations through our initiators back and back and back to sort of the original kind of Gerald Gardner. And Alexander's. Cool. Thank you. I think just keeping in mind personality types is really key also. And just if you're a very type A person and you're going to be frustrated by a slightly distracted coven leader, then just sort of be aware of that. And if your coven leader is, you know, slightly on the more disorganized side or like maybe a little bit more relaxed in their leadership style and that's going to bother you, then, you know, go find a coven that's as type A as you are simultaneously, like if you find a coven leader who's very strict or has like a very clear, like high set of expectations, very strict, and it rubs you the wrong way, if that feels like it's just not going to be something that you're going to be able to meet their expectations, then that's not the coven for you either. And that's fine. I think people should ideally try to find themselves in places where, where they're going to match up. Like I know for sure, like our students right now, I think like me and my high priest probably like check off boxes like for them in different ways because we're different kinds of people right so it's nice when when you have coven leadership that complement each other in that way but you know i'm a much more relaxed i have a much more relaxed leadership style i mean i have checklists i'm i'm organized but i'm relaxed in my expectations um i'm very informal and conversational but people who are looking for a very formal btw like high church uh, traditional wicca kind of a thing might not enjoy my more sort of like relaxed style they might they might take it the wrong way so then there are plenty of very formal covens again we're spoiled for choice here where they might be happier so it just kind of depends on that so that brings us to the next piece of this episode which is the piece that james has been waiting for the most and we're going to talk about red flags in covens i'd like to take this in two parts if that's okay with y'all the first part is like red flags for everybody 
this should be acknowledged as a red flag. And then the second part could be sort of red flags for people who care about that kind of thing. So James, because I know you're excited and I do, I really wish I had a bell that I could ding every time you mention something, but I don't. So what are some red flags, James, that seekers should be on the lookout for? I just want to start by saying that I care deeply about protecting seekers, but also about protecting the integrity of the Wicca. So I have a long list. I, I spent a good time kind of brainstorming through this. I, I didn't separate them into your categories, so y'all feel free to say whatever it is. If, if the coven tries to dictate your personal life, controlling your friendships, family relationships, social isolation, not the same as the no socialization rule, but isolate you from others. That's a red flag. Um, if they're unable or unwilling to provide a vouch, that is a red flag. If they ask you to pay their bills or to pay for training, that's a red flag. If they require any form of personal servitude in exchange for training, I'll give an example of that, is they want you to do housework, cleaning around the house that's not relevant to the coven. That's personal servitude, and it's a red flag. Coven-related, hey, pitch in, everyone works, it gets done. But I'm talking personal servitude. Any form of inappropriate sexual behavior, sexual harassment, assault, requiring sex, or sexual favors for initiation training, the list goes on and on. No. If they don't allow you to ask questions or they vilify you for having a difference in opinion. If the coven is a very authoritative or personality-driven via their leadership, now I don't mean that they're not strict or you don't like them. I'm, I'm talking about the dangerous cult land aspect of that. Uh, any form of discrimination is displayed based on race, sex, gender, orientation, ethnicity, etc. They mandate specific beliefs, ideology, viewpoints, and sometimes they will try to cloud this or hide this within language, and they say, oh, it's a teaching. Well, you're teaching is forcing a belief upon me and it's exposing a ideology uh, they teach only one true way and then my my personal favorite is and this one's hard to to get into because some of the the signs of this in and of themselves by themselves are not indicative that there is a red flag but in the combination of these you will get a red flag and that's fundamentalism and it exists across different religions and so for show notes i'm going to cite a source my textbook or one of the textbooks from when i went through fundamentalism course in college is strong religion the rise of fundamentalism around the world by gabriel a almond r scott appleby and emmanuel Sivin. so feel free to give that a read and you'll know what I'm talking about by fundamentalism. So fundamentalism is a reactionary movement against the new or modern, where they are selective on what practices or beliefs they emphasize to only support their argument against others, create a us versus them paradigm where we are the elect chosen ones and they are not. They emphasize protecting the fundamentals against erosion, 
purism, a return to the golden age, and they're absolute in this idea. And it is dangerous for the Wicca. And those are my red flags. Those are all very excellent red flags. Thank you. And I think, I, I mean, I appreciate because I know that you've actually done scholarship in this area. And so I know that's why you were excited about it. And I really loved what you said about it's about protecting the seekers and it's about protecting the tradition that we love. Because if we leave space for fundamentalist attitude or for covens that are abusive in some way, then that unfortunately paints us all with that same brush. And so maintaining some kind of a moral ethical standard around things like non-discrimination or around personal servitude, like any of that, right? This is why people have bad attitudes towards covens. I don't think it's because they've seen these things in BTW covens. I think that they've seen these things because when you have groups of people, eclectic covens, whatever, you end up with some of these red flag issues. And so it's really important that our seekers who are looking for British traditional witchcraft know that those are not covens we would consider or that anyone would consider proper people. Can I what? add to these red yes. flags before we go into red flags for some people? Yes. Um, I'm going to suggest for the show notes as well, the cult warning signs checklist. And a lot of those James covered in his list. Um, one of the ones uh, that I also would suggest is an overwhelming kind of paper trail, a negative paper trail. If there is a whole lot of articles and and things like that about just how dodgy somebody is, this is a red flag and you need to seriously consider whether you want to sort of attach yourself to this person or this group. Yes, 100%. That's an excellent point. What I was thinking about in terms of things that are red flags for some people, the first thing that comes to my mind, because it's been a conversation in a lot of places recently, is if trans and non-binary inclusion is important to you, then you should be on the lookout for covens that put an emphasis on biological sex or who talk about biological sex a lot, who talk about reproductive parts a lot, right? Who, who emphasize um, or place an emphasis on physical attributes. Look out for those code words in their materials, on their website, their Facebook groups, where you see them posting in seekers groups, uh, because those are individuals who are likely not interested in creating an inclusive space for trans and non-binary seekers. Similarly, there is still some homophobia present in the craft. I think that we should all be concerned about that, whether we are heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or some other version of some other sexuality. Um, but be on the lookout for very heteronormative language if that is something that is important to you. Right? So there are people for whom maybe it's not, and I'm not here to why well, I'm going to judge you, I guess, a little bit. But if if it's not a concern for you, then then I guess don't worry about it. But if you are interested in finding open, inclusive spaces, look for covens that advertise themselves as open, inclusive spaces. There's a growing movement for covens to be explicit about who they're open to. And I think that that is also a question that you might want to. We, we mentioned that, I think, actually, in the list of questions. Anybody else have... Any other thoughts in terms of those are the ones that have been like buzzing around my head because of recent conversations that people may have seen online. Mm, for sure. I've got two others, if that's all right. The first is 
a sort of a focus on the worship of people rather than deity. And this I see a lot online. I see a little bit uh, in in some groups as well. We owe a lot to uh, people who came before us in these traditions for sure, but we worship gods, not people. And if there is a fixation on um, sort of the good old days and people from the good old days and especially how they looked, right, this is this really worries me. There's a big kickback from people about aesthetic witches but or people on Instagram who are all about the look of being a witch and, and nothing else. But then these are often the same people who will go on and on about you know, how great everybody looked in the 70s and how glamorous they were. And, yeah, they did look great and they were really glamorous, but you're kind of missing the point if that's why you think Wicca is really cool. So, yeah, an overemphasis on what somebody said 30 years ago, especially when that negates what we're trying to do as a living tradition. Am I being too controversial? No, I don't think I don't think you are being controversial. <laughs> well, maybe you are being a little bit controversial, but we did say these are red flags for people who care about mm. them. Right. Like for sure. yeah. if, if you're the kind of person who is totally here for, I want to be a member of like the elite squad and do things as historically accurate to what Gardner was doing 70 years ago, then like you don't care about this. And that's that's totally fine. That's up to you. But if you are more interested in having in viewing Wicca as a living, evolving tradition, then I think these are things that you want to have on your radar. Does that hmm. make sense? Absolutely. And for sure, like acknowledge and, and work upon things that have come before, but like also focus upon what's going to happen next and what you're doing now. These are equally important as, you know, what Gerald Gardner said to his milkman in 1956. Yeah, I guess you know? I should say like we are all still doing exactly what Gerald Gardner did by the nature of tradition, aren't we? But but it's hmm. yeah, it's like that the emphasis on the um on those little on anecdotes, right? Mm. Like that which we do has to be relevant today. The seventies is long gone and it's yeah. not gonna survive into tomorrow. It's a living tradition. If it's gonna maintain that, it has to be relevant. It has to have context to the people who are practicing it today. Absolutely. And it becomes the problem when the emphasis on history and on that sort of stuff outweighs what's currently being done and what's going to be done next that's when you fall into holes that's when traditions start to die my other one is just about personal practice um i've been asked about this a couple of times just recently so i thought i'd just mention it here generally a coven won't dictate your personal practice um the caveat for me there would be if you were training with my group or with me, I wouldn't expect you to go off and also sign up to like some other tradition. Like I, I don't think you could learn to be a Wiccan and a Druid at exactly the same time. But apart from that, your personal practice is yours. Andrew, I'll add to that your beliefs, which I know that James said, but I just want to point out, I have circled with and had coven members who are atheists, who are maybe more Buddhist in there, if I can say that, probably not, but who, who would describe themselves as having a more Buddhist philosophy towards, towards deity, I guess. All of those people are perfectly effective priests and priestesses of the Wicca. The way that that works is complicated 
and does not matter because it works for the individual. It doesn't have to work for me. And so I just think that's really important to know, like ritual only has to work. That's it. If ritual works for you, what your belief system behind it, it, it does not matter and it should not matter. That's what we mean. And well, why we keep coming back to this idea of being an orthopraxic religion. In, in that respects, I look at it as we don't dictate what the nature of the gods is to you. It's for you to figure that out. We just emphasize that ritually we treat them as if they are real in some manner, speaking ritually. But the nature of that realism, whether it's an archetype, a motif, a physical being somewhere, etc., is on you. I don't dictate that. I might have conversations with you and it'd be great, but I don't lay that down. Yeah, and that might be something that sort of like falls into coven fit, right? Like if you just sort of find that your perception of deity doesn't line up with the rest of the coven and for whatever reason that's causing some friction, then okay, like that's that's fine. But I just want to make clear that there are all manner of beliefs that can fit into the Wicca and that's fine. We have also very clearly in this episode, if we had not done so before, pretty clearly here, outed ourselves as being relatively progressive uh, on the progressive end of the British traditional Wicca movement. But that's, that is okay, I think. Surprise, everyone. Surprise. Um, Gay people. But. Small twist. (laughs) But that's, that's part of why, you know, we wanted to do this is because autonomy in British traditional Wicca and I, for the life of me, cannot recall how often we've talked about this because I do think that COVID is messing with my brain a smidge. But like autonomy is very important in British traditional Wicca. Each coven is autonomous unto itself, provided that it checks off a certain number of boxes in regards to the Book of Shadows and the way that people are trained to a degree and initiated. And beyond that, the attitudes, beliefs, Um, additional practices, uh, culture are all going to be so very different. And that means that there is space for everybody in this, right? So part of it is like, we wanted to make that clear to people that there are very few voices out there who speak about Alexandrian witchcraft. Um, Gardnerians have been around like a smidge longer and for some reason, therefore also tend to be a little bit more public. And we wanted to make sure that there were more voices speaking about just like the absolute diversity that's present in the practice of Alexandrian witchcraft and that there is space available for a lot of different kinds of people to be welcome and to find a home that's going to work for them. Anybody have anything else that we should add here? I'm just trying to think because I know I'm being really quiet, but a lot of a lot of the, the conversations that you three have been having, you took all my points. I got nothing to add. I had points to say then James was like right this 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 is I know I have nothing to say (laughs) I'll be quicker on the draw Peter oh I know (laughs) I'll go last next time (laughs) (laughs) no don't make me go first because then I gotta think of all the things to say that's why there are four of us we pick up the pieces for each other because we're friends I just want to make I just want to make the audience that aware that I'm still here. <laughs> I'm not just like left. I am still here. Just well, listening. we have had lots of feedback about your accent and how much people That's love true. it. So you will have to talk more. We're gonna to have keep to our talk ratings up. That's right. <laughs> I'll just I'll just like 
next one I'll just uh, I'll open with like a song in Welsh or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> finish and open and finish with something in Welsh. That'll go great. <laughs> Because Josie did the theme song this episode, so next episode we're going to look forward to a theme song from Peter, and we'll just take That's turns. true. We'll That's true. Like hosting. All right, so we've we have found a coven. We have communicated with that coven. We have met up with that coven. We've decided we're going to work with that coven. We're now in the process of working that coven, and we want to know when do we get initiated? First, you need to ask. Then after you've asked, that conversation will happen between you and the coven, because I think it's going to vary between the coven, uh, from coven to coven. Traditionally, it's a minimum of a year and day. I don't necessarily hold very strict to that. It's very disindividual-based, but it needs to be long enough for us to get to know you and you us, and to make sure all the pre-initiation conversations take place. Yeah, everything in Wicca is asked for. So even if you're at an out of court stage, if the person who was training you in the out of court says there are 13 lessons, because we love the number 13 in witchcraft. If there are 13 lessons and you're on lesson number 13 and then it all kind of just stops, the coven leaders are probably waiting for you to say, right, okay, what's the next step? Am I, um, are we going down initiation? And then you have that conversation. But everything in, in Wicca is asked for by, by the person who wants it. And again, you know, Every group will do it slightly differently. There might be some covens where the leaders will say, right, you're ready now. But I think a lot of covens will will wait for the seeker or the dedicant to ask for initiation after a certain period of time. Do you guys have the three times rule? No, okay. We do not, but I know of the three times rule. I know covens yeah. that adhere to okay. it. Yeah, we might. My so first coven had it that I was in. Had the three times rule. Were they like very, did they tell you ahead of time? Or was it like, oh, that no. sucks? I was just like, oh, I'll go and fuck myself, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> I really think we should keep this part of the conversation in now. <laughs> yes. No, we are, we are, we are. Uh, go so ahead. what is, what is, what is this, this, this three rule thing? So some covens practice that you have to ask for initiation three times before you will be accepted for initiation. And some covens apparently are, a little bit hardcore about this and like really leave you hanging and confused. I was super lucky in that my high priest and high priestess were like, what, what? I didn't, I didn't, what? And I was like, no, I just, I just, no, I'm sorry. I just wanted to know if, if I could get initiated or if I was, there was anything else I had to do to get initiated. And they were like, oh, um, sorry. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Could you say again? I was like, what? No, I don't. I, I just, I just wanted to know if I could get initiated. And they're like, yes, you have to ask three times. And I'm like, this has been a very confusing conversation, but at least it was like all in a five minute time period. If I had had to go home, I think I would have been like super distressed. <laughs> so I'm going to ask why, why make somebody ask three times? Because if, if you're a very anxious person or you're a very nervous person, you might ask once and then be kind of shot down and then think, oh no, uh, well, I'm not going to ask again because I'm cleaning already. And then you might you might wait another two, two three, four months. Two, uh, two years. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they try to discourage people that the work is hard and they only want people who are that committed that they'll keep asking. That's the reasoning I've heard. There might be other reasoning, but that's that's what you got. Yeah, I get I get that. It was almost a total question because I know why coven leaders might make somebody ask three times 
but then when does that become a an ego trip or a power trip and when does that become abusive like do you ask does it become then nine times because it's the rule of three you know does it become 13 because we love the number 13 <laughs> <laughs> like i know i know why somebody would make somebody ask and there's a part of me that's like yes i will make them ask three times because they they will show their dedication but then also i'm like if you've built up enough courage to come to me after so many lessons and to say can i get initiated i'm going to be just as excited and squealing as you are to say yes it's really some fairy tale sort of stuff like you must answer me these questions three it's very i don't know i don't know that it's necessary yeah i think i think it's a combination <laughs> yes i think i think it's a combination of those things of that sort of like magical importance of the number three and asking three times and showing that you really mean it but and it's not it's not a red flag if that's the if that's the coven's way of doing things but it would be really nice to know ahead of time so maybe maybe check in with like a, a first degree or something and like elbow them and say like hey <laughs> are there any <laughs> Any tricks I need to be aware of? I, I also want to point out in terms of timeline, I think Thorne does a really good job of this in her book, but like smaller covens may need to move quicker, right? If a coven is just getting off the ground, you might get initiated sooner than a year and a day because people are needed to do ritual. And so it may be that your training is like somewhat accelerated. And I think that ideally people would find that sort of flattering. If you find, if you feel like you're, your high priest or high priestess or high priestess is moving too quickly and you're not comfortable, you know, have that conversation with them. But um, don't take it as a red flag just because a coven maybe like moves a little bit quicker if if they're new or if they're a smaller group, because sometimes you just need the bodies. And so you got to do what you got to do. Can I just acknowledge as well, it's, it's a lot to put yourself out there and ask. So it's, it's all very well for us to sit here and be like, you just have to ask for it. But it's it's a huge thing to lay yourself out and your coven leaders will know that and it's likely they're probably expecting you to ask anyway if that helps if that makes it easier yes definitely anything any other last minute points that we want to that we want to get in no but i will share a funny story actually okay so when i went to join my my first coven which was almost like a seed group we kind of met up we had like a card player night where there were symbols on cards and we would we would try and telepathically know or guess what what symbol was on the cards like using the the, the tatvas i went upstairs i was like oh excuse me i need to go to the toilet and i came back down and in that time it wasn't a long time and they were like yes we have something to tell you we will accept you for for like not like initiation is the wrong word because we weren't on alexandria coven uh, but then when I did did join Alexandria Coven, it was it was a couple of months into like asking and everything, and they were like, "Oh, it's about time you asked us. It's about time." So because I, I built myself up to asking, and then they were like, "Yeah, we're not going to tell you you're ready. You've got to you've got to come to us and you've got to ask it for us." That's my story. That's a good story, and I do think I do think that's pretty common, right? And I think that is typical. Okay, so. That about brings us to the end of this episode. Today, we have talked about a number of things, including but not limited to what is up with the word joining? Do we join a coven? Do we ask for admittance into a coven? How do we talk about that? The definitions of proper person, properly prepared, different ways to find a coven, how you approach a coven, 
how to meet up with coven or coven leaders, coven members, and what to expect from those conversations, different red flags that you should be on the lookout for, and when is initiation going to happen and how do you ask for initiation. And so as a closing thought, I just want to leave you with a sort of summary of our Why Covens episode, which is that there are a lot of different covens in the world and there's a real diversity of belief and practice, even in covens of the same tradition, even in covens of the same lineage. And there is absolutely space for everybody. Working with a group is some of the best magic that's out there. And if you are concerned or afraid of joining a coven because you are worried about some of those red flags, know that just by being somewhat cautious and restrained with a little bit of work and a little bit of looking, it is often very possible for you to find a home and get to sort of experience some of the joy in ritual that we experience all the time with our covens. So Wicca is available for everybody. We encourage you to go out and look and find it for yourself. So thank you all for listening. You can see the episode notes for our contact information. Actually, I would like to start explicitly saying you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Circle Talk for Witches, the number four, Circle Talk for Witches, and on Twitter at Circle for Witches. We encourage you to reach out, uh, send us a Gmail at circletalkforwitches at gmail.com. Let us know if you have any questions, ideas for future episodes, comments, concerns. We would love to hear from you. From all of us at Circle Talk, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. Be well.